0: uh, Good evening, everyone. Uh, Welcome to the Middle East Centre. I think it is uh, indicative of the knowledge and the expertise of our speaker, and indeed the the title that she's chosen, um, that we have such a rich and diverse crowd. Uh, This is a, a double celebration, this lecture. Firstly, we welcome... Dr Courtney Freer to the uh, Middle East Centre uh, she's been appointed as our latest uh, research officer and secondly we celebrate her first publication at the Middle East Centre, rent to Islam the role of the Muslim Brotherhood in the Gulf there'll be copies available at the front afterwards and so we will rate the popularity and entertainment of her speech by how many are taken after she's been speaking I can assure you it will be an excellent speech, and I tell you why this is the case. Because Courtney received a BA from Princeton in Near East Studies, MA in George Washington Elliott School of International Affairs, and has just finished her PhD in, the, in, in Middle East Politics at the University of Oxford. As we know, it's, that's the second best place in Britain to study a PhD. After <laughs> Um and she, before that, she was working uh, at the Brookings Doha Center, um, and has. A, a, Already some very interesting publications to her name. The Rise of Pragmatic Islamism in Kuwait's Post-Arab Spring Opposition, soon to be published. Something with the Brookings Institute, Exclusion, Moderation, the Emergence of Islamist Cooperation with Secular Groups in Kuwait. And then some op-eds with the Philadelphia Inquiry and a jointly published piece with Brookings on Jordan. So Courtney will speak for about 40 minutes and then we'll have questions and answer and we'll wrap up before 7.30. Thanks a lot.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having me. I'm uh, glad to be here. Glad to be at LSE and excited to have the opportunity to speak about a topic that I think is talked about a great deal but is not very well understood. Um, In fact, when I started working on this project about three years ago, I was shocked at the lack of scholarship on Muslim Brotherhood groups in the Gulf, in particular in the smaller states, Kuwait, Qatar, and UAE, which is the ones that I've chosen to speak to focus on. Um, and furthermore, I, I, hope that, I hope that this project would help to uh, amend rentier state theory. It's my feeling that in Gulf studies, we rely too heavily on the kind of traditional rentier state paradigm. The maxim "no taxation, no representation" is often taken to describe the extent of political activity inside of rentier states. Essentially, it's thought that opposition can be fought off in states that are extremely wealthy. Um, but when we look at uh, what I call the super rentiers of Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE, they've all had Muslim Brotherhood affiliates, and so it remains to be seen whether ideological politics can kind of go around the rentier uh, dynamic that we are used to seeing. So, um, just to clarify, I'm looking at what I call the super rentiers, which is Kuwait, Qatar, and the UAE, and. I call them that because they are kind of the most rentier states of the Gulf, and so the best examples of rentierism due to the fact that they have the highest per capita incomes, the lowest uh, ratio of non of nationals to non-nationals, and uh, as well as the most generous um, welfare packages in the region and often maybe even in the world. Um, so aside from hoping to amend rentier state theory, I also was surprised at the lack of uh, scholarship on political Islam more generally in explaining political, uh, Islamist mobilization in the Gulf. Um, and uh, in fact, the, the literature on political Islam tends to focus on the poorer and more democratic states of the region, particularly in places like Egypt and Jordan. And it falls short in terms of describing the Gulf. Um, in fact, when we look at Gulf uh, frontier Islamists, if you will, um, they have fundamentally different tasks than do Islamists elsewhere in the region. Uh, Namely, there are three tasks that uh, Maza Brotherhood groups uh, usually traditionally undertake, which are irrelevant in the Gulf. The first is uh, the provision of material welfare. Obviously, this isn't necessary in states where there's a massive government-funded welfare apparatus. Second, the organization of electoral campaigns outside of Kuwait is irrelevant in in the states of Qatar and the UAE, and so the Brotherhood doesn't play a role in that way. Third, the Brotherhood is not needed to provide a social network or something of an alternate family as it has in other places, namely in Egypt, due to the strength of tribal and clan ties in in the Gulf states we're looking at. And so this uh, lack of, the fact that they don't need to provide tangible benefits allows Muslim Brotherhood groups in the Gulf to be more flexible in terms of their structure and their function. And that's why they look quite different, even in states which are otherwise quite similar in their profile. Um, and, And so it remains to be seen then, what exactly do Muslim Brotherhood groups do in rentier states where they, they can't really complain about their economic status, and where there there aren't very many institutionalized means through which to voice political grievances, and so that's kind of what the puzzle that I wanted to look at in my dissertation and that I grapple with um, that I'm grappling with in this uh, this paper. And what I found is that Muslim Brotherhood uh, affiliates and super rentiers are essentially important in the provision of spiritual welfare and of ideological inspiration. This is particularly this. Uh, may not sound important, but it is actually quite critical in states that are often um, criticized for having, uh, for lacking cultural or intellectual vibrancy. Furthermore, these are states wherein modernization has been accompanied with a great deal of Westernization and secularization, in such uh, in, as well as a massive influx of expatriates. Um, in such an environment. Islamism becomes a form of nationalism. It's a means of asserting national identity as well as preserving traditional cultural values, indigenous to the Gulf. And so despite this base similarity, um, when looking at Muslim Brotherhood branches, even in the super rentiers, which have similar economic, political, and demographic profiles, they look very different. In Kuwait, for example, the Muslim Brotherhood is institutionalized and is an accepted part of the political system, and it runs in parliamentary elections and has done so since the 1960s. In Qatar, um, the Muslim Brotherhood formally just, uh, voluntarily disbanded itself in 1999, and so has influence there only through the informal means, in particular through uh, informal institutions like majalis meetings. In the UAE, following the latest 2012 crackdown on the Brotherhood, uh, it exists only underground at a very small level, if at all. Um, and so having described kind of the broad picture of Rentier Islamism in the puzzle I'm looking at, I'm going to turn to looking at the cases more specifically, starting with Kuwait. The, so, the Kuwaiti Muslim Brotherhood is the oldest and most influential branch of the Brotherhood in the Gulf. It was established in 1951, a full decade before Kuwaiti independence. Um, it was created under the umbrella of al Ishad al Islami, Islamic Guidance Society, and aimed to combat creeping Western influence, especially in the education sector. During this period in Kuwait, Christian missionaries were establishing schools, and so Ishad sought to come this development, in particular with its, the establishment of its own school, Irshad School, um, which stressed Islamic education. Um, the Irshad uh, also built a library, lecture hall, and undertook a, a number of activities in terms of social work and Dawah more broadly. Um, so it's essentially aimed to Islamize society from the ground up, using the grassroots to create large level change, rather than using political power at the top to effect change in that means. So in that way, it resembled the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt at its very early stage before it entered parliamentary politics. Beginning in this period, and throughout the, I would argue throughout the 1990s, the Brotherhood received um, pretty substantial government support, more, more so in their early decades. The, the government uh, really saw their work as useful for society, especially in its early decades. Indeed, um, Brotherhood sympathizers were often brought from abroad to a staff and understaffed education sector. Um, and and their influence was not seen as politically threatening. A large reason for this was that uh, Arab nationalism was the uh, primary political opposition at that time in Kuwait and was until the end of the 1960s. And therefore, uh, the Muslim motherhood and Islamism more broadly was seen as a bulwark against that movement, um, which was considered much more threatening. So, um, following Kuwaiti independence in 1961, Irshad rebranded itself as Jamiat al isla al or the Social Reform Society, which I'll refer to as isla. Um Isla still exists today as a social arm of the Muslim Brotherhood, um, and it was established in, in 1961, basically uh, under the new Associations Law in, in the independent Kuwait. It essentially had the same goals and membership as Irshad. Um, it. it uh, uh, conducted a great deal of dawah work and social outreach, and was also rewarded with a number of ministerial positions. So Islam members were involved in particular in ministries of prof, education, justice, oil and finance, and information. And Islam members used these positions to kind of Islamize uh, society in some, in some ways, or at least to uh, influence edu- legislation towards their ends. One of their primary goals, or in fact, their primary goal was to amend Article 2 of the Constitution to proclaim Sharia as the, rather than a, primary source of uh, legislation. Inside the um, nonetheless, uh, despite their efforts in the 1960s, nationalism continued to dominate in parliamentary polls, and uh, during this time, Muslim Brotherhood members ran only as individuals rather than as members of parliamentary blocs. Um, the Brotherhood became more powerful in the 1970s with the fall of nationalism, which was ushered in largely after the 1967 military defeat of the Baal of the Nasser, um, The Brotherhood also expanded its presence greatly in the 1970s, um, with the publication of its weekly magazine, Al-Muchama, with uh, the hosting of a variety of outreach events, social events, in particular for groups such like women and uh, tribal, the tribal population in rural areas which hadn't been exposed to Brotherhood ideology previously. Perhaps most importantly, the Brotherhood also um, was able to shore up support inside of the education sector, in particular, by entering student union elections at the national university, Kuwait University. Um, Remarkably, since 1979, the bloc has won leadership of that body um, without fail. Um, And this has allowed the Brotherhood not only to influence a massive student body, it's some 30,000 students every week, um, but also to uh, gain a foothold in professional associations and labor unions uh, once these students graduate from the university. So having short-up support in the 1970s, the uh, Islam in 1981 decided to enter politics as a parliamentary bloc in elections. Uh, there were some reservations about the appropriateness of, and of an Islamist group entering into government, into a non, into essentially a secular government. Yet ultimately, um, Islam decided that it was necessary for a Sunni Islamist bloc to be represented in parliament and felt that it was the best way to Islamize society and Islamize legislation. Um, throughout the 1980s, it had Uh, Islam won uh, three seats in the two elections during that period and continued its focus on Islamizing society. It had limited success with the passage of certain laws on social policies, specifically the law limiting Kuwaiti nationality to Muslims in 1982, and the banning of the sale and consumption of alcohol in foreign embassies in 1983. Uh, The Islam MPs were also able to successfully oust an education minister whom they regarded as too secular during this period. Um, in 1986, uh, the Brotherhood grouped with other non-Islamist uh, parliamentary blocs to question ministers' uh, performance in Parliament. Following that, uh, the government, kind of fearing this newfound opposition unity, uh, dissolved Parliament. Um, and when Parliament still wasn't restored in 1988, the Islam moved into more fuller opposition into fuller opposition. Um, joining the Constitutional Movement. Uh, This was a group of a variety of political groupings with various ideological backgrounds that agitated for the restoration of parliamentary life. Um, In fact, they were still agitating for the restoration of parliament, the calling of elections, when in August 1990, Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait. During the occupation, which lasted until February 1991, the Muslim Brotherhood played a key role in the resistance movement, as well as providing services for Kuwaiti citizens through mosques and cooperative society. And so at this point, they took on a task which is common to Muslim Brotherhood groups throughout the region. Um, Notably, the occupation uh, raised their profile because they were providing for citizenry when the government had fled, largely, and uh, also um, this led to a break with their relationship with the Egyptian Muslim uh, Muslim Brotherhood and other organizations. While the Egyptian Brotherhood had initially criticized uh, Saddam Hussein's invasion into Kuwait, uh, it later uh, condemned the non Arab resolution of it through a US led coalition. Members of the Kuwaiti Brotherhood saw this as a betrayal and so broke ties with the Egyptian movement. This allowed the Kuwaiti Brotherhood more freedom to adopt an increasingly nationalized agenda. Uh, and led in 1991 to the creation of the Islamic Constitutional Movement, uh, which I refer to as ICM, but which you may have heard referred to as Hadas, It's uh, Arabic acronym. Um, the ICM uh, is uh, basically <coughs> runs parliamentary elections, where uh, runs for parliamentary elections, whereas Islam remains as the Brotherhood's social arm, running um, activities and particularly charity and youth organizations, um, youth outreach. Um, The ICM has has been notably more pragmatic and flexible in terms of pursuing political aims and would would take political advancements over the focus on Islamizing society, which had dominated the agenda throughout the 1980s, in particular the focus on social policies. Um, And so to that end, in the 1990s, the ICM pursued a number of limited cooperation with non-Islamist political blocs. But these always became uh, divided due to the Muslim Brotherhood's stress on certain social issues which non-Islamists found problematic. Um, For example, focus on issues like gender segregation in schooling, uh, the mandatory wearing of the hijab in scientific laboratories for university, things like this, um, led uh, non-Islamist partners and coalitions to feel that substantive, what they considered substantive political issues were being put on, on the back burner, essentially, and led to crumbling of coalitions with the ICM. This all changed in 2006 when the ICM positioned itself firmly with the opposition in agitating for a change in electoral law to reduce the number of electoral districts from 25 to 5 in a move which the opposition insisted would reduce uh, the opportunities for gerrymandering. The We Want 5 movement ultimately succeeded and uh, the 2008 elections were held under these new rules. Um, Also in 2008, the ICM removed itself from the cabinet (coughs) as it saw its participation in government as not providing it with much benefit or much voice while also uh, restraining its influence, its actions in parliament. And so since 2008, we've seen the ICM unite increasingly with other political blocs, uh, especially with the opposition, um, in particular in efforts to question ministers, especially on corruption charges. And so, what we saw um, during the Arab Spring in particular in 2011, we saw the largest protests in Kuwaiti history, and a lot of these dealt with um, kind of corruption charges, vote buying, and uh, involved a united force of traditional non-Islamist opposition with the ICM. The ICM has also boycotted um, elections uh, since uh, the December 2012 polls after the unilaterally changed voting laws. By boycotting the December 2012 polls and the subsequent July 2013 election, the ICM and other opposition movements hope to reveal that the government, rather than the opposition, is the source of gridlock in the Kuwaiti system. Um, and despite being outside of Parliament, the ICM is still politically relevant. And in 2013, signed a document advocating for reform alongside the popular labor movement uh, and civil democratic movement, as well as uh, a certain uh, the Salafi party at UMA. Um This document proposes a stronger legislature, a full parliamentary system, an independent judiciary, and a revised criminal code. Um, since 2011, it seems that the government is, re- is reacting, if anything, against opposition unity rather than the Muslim Brotherhood's role in it specifically. Um, And so things that have happened such as the dissolution of parliament, the change in electoral laws, um, as well as the imprisonment of some uh, activists and the serving citizenship of uh, certain members of the opposition are a reaction to, in my opinion, more opposition unity and there hasn't been uh, a backlash against the Brotherhood's role in that specifically. Um, It appears that any kind of government backlash doesn't seem to be stopping this opposition unity. In fact, earlier this year, former ICM uh, MP Mubarak Alduela publicly made a statement stressing the importance of of political blocs setting aside their traditional differences in order to focus on political reform. And so this is kind of the trajectory of the ICM today. And so what we see with the Kuwaiti Brotherhood is that it is a fully nationalized agenda that's focused increasingly on reform ahead of Islamization. It is also pursuing gradualistic change. For these reasons, the government doesn't appear to be panicking. Um, the, the Brotherhood has also only ever won six out of fifty seats in parliamentary elections, and so is not uh, is by no means a kind of majority party. It, though it has had more influence in coalition with uh, with other political blocs, and so um, well, rentier state theory certainly wouldn't predict this kind of opposition unity or the level of opposition that we've seen in Kuwait, um, and I think it's partly due to the fact that Kuwait's uh, system allows for a great deal more representation than do the other um, kind of frontier states. So now I'm going to move to the Qatari case. Um, as in Kuwait, uh, brotherhood influence in Qatar began through its education system, in particular with the arrival of Egyptian teachers um, who were staffing uh, the very much understaffed education sector. This led to the organization of local dawah and tarbiya activities among Qatari nationals. Um, also, um, as in Kuwait, the Qatari government favored brotherhood influence, uh, in particular as a bulwark against uh, Arab nationalism. In fact, Arab nationalism was very much the, the dominant political trend inside of Qatar until the 1970s. Nationalists led labor strikes beginning in the 1950s in Qatar and also led the charge for greater political representation in the 1960s. And so it's unsurprising that Al encouraged the hiring of um, brotherhood-leaning individuals, in particular in the education sector, to influence uh, later generations, in particular, away from uh, Arab nationalism, which was considered more problematic. Um, at the same time, uh, so then in, in the 1970s, uh, as nationalism was waning, a large number of country students began returning after studying abroad, um, particularly in places like Egypt, which had strong brotherhood movements. Uh, they were eager to emulate the Brotherhood model at home, and so in 1975, a formal Muslim Brotherhood was established in Qatar. Um, in the words of its uh, former Supreme Guide, Justin Sultan, it was collaboration and a simple thing. He also told me that the founding statement of the Qatari Muslim Brotherhood was one sheet of paper and that it had been lost, um, which is a testament to just how informal the organization was, even at its height. Um, and so the Qatari Brotherhood focused primarily on dawah, the study of Sharia and the Quran, as well as the arrangement of youth and education events. So it was similar to the Kuwaiti Brotherhood and the Egyptian Brotherhood in early years before they entered um, formal politics. In the 1980s, um, an influx of Syrian Muslim Brotherhood after Muslim Brotherhood members after the Assad regime's crackdown led to some expansion of brotherhood activities inside of Qatar, in particular from 1980 until 1986. The magazine Al-Ummar al-Katariyya was published uh, under the leadership of Syrian Amar B. Twisma. During the same period in the 1980s, however, a split emerged uh, between the younger generation of Qataris who wanted to expand and formalize uh, Brotherhood activities, and the older generation that was skeptical about the the utility of uh, formalizing activities of the Muslim Brotherhood inside a state which has uh, no legislative elections and has no real economic grievances. and this split led to internal examination of the Qatari K- Brotherhood which began in 1980 and resulted in an extensive two-part study dissecting the Muslim Brotherhood in terms of its structure, leadership and goals. The study was ultimately completed in 1991. The first portion is the only part which is published and focused on the examination of the ideology of Edi- Egyptian Muslim Brotherhood founder Hassan al banna And it essentially criticizes the ideology itself for its failure to adapt and to modernize. And some, uh, some scholars take this, this publication as evidence of a split between the Qatari Brotherhood and the Egyptian mother organization. Um, in fact, uh, the author was listed as Abdelawid Al-Ghazali, who was a member of the Egyptian Brotherhood Shura Council at the time. And so um, it's seen as kind of a, a means of criticizing the Egyptian Brotherhood, and, and some people believe that the dissolution of the Qatari Brotherhood was in, in at least in, in some to some extent influenced by its poor relationship with the with the Egyptian group. Um, the second portion of the the Kalturi Brotherhood study remains unpublished and focuses on Qatar specifically. It uh, concluded I mean though we don't know much about it because it's it's unpublished. It did conclude that the Qatari Brotherhood had been frozen by dogma, had lost direction, and had failed to adapt. Um, it ultimately concluded that there was no benefit in having a formalized cultural Muslim Brotherhood organization. Um, in 1999, then, the organization voted unanimously to dissolve itself, um, a process about which very little is known, but is said to have been completed in 2003. Um, it, uh, a lot of people ask me whether this was due to government pressure, and in my opinion, that's not the case. Since the Brotherhood had traditionally had uh, good ties with Althani, the ruling family, and uh, also because the Brotherhood really wasn't challenging the political leadership and wasn't even all that organized. Um, rather, I think that fear about a crackdown was like, may have been su- sufficient to make Katsuri Brotherhood members uh, cautious about ramping up activities. Indeed, similar crackdowns on the Brotherhood had occurred in Oman, Saudi Arabia, and in the UAE in the mid-1990s, and so this may have influenced the Katsuri decision-making. Um, ultimately, uh, it seems that the, that the Katsuri Brotherhood found that that there was no need for it to have an, an organizational structure. Rather, it could exist and continue with its Dawah work as an amorphous uh, body um, without, without compromising itself, raising suspicion, or impinging on the government's prerogative. In fact, uh, some people say that the, the Brotherhood has more, more freedom today as a trend or a tendency rather than as an organization, since it can't readily be controlled or repressed. Today, then, the Muslim Brotherhood in Qatar exists only at the smallest level, which is the Usra level, and in intimate Quranic recitation circles. Um, Still, it's difficult to determine just how much popular support exists for the Brotherhood inside of Qatar. There's, first of all, a problem of labeling, because certain Qataris who may agree with Brotherhood ideology and whom we we may label as Brotherhood wouldn't uh, call themselves that. Um, Secondly, there's a problem of conflating Islamist ideology and specifically Muslim Brotherhood ideology with traditional Wahhabi conservatism. Still, we see some vocal segment of the Qatari population that is agitated for conservative social policies of the type that the Muslim Brotherhood would support elsewhere. And these have been voiced through the informal Majala system, which allows uninstitutionalized access to uh, the political leadership. Since the Arab Spring, the the Qatari government appears to be increasingly responsive to um, demands to change certain social policies, in particular, we've seen certain limits on the sale of alcohol in beginning in 2011 with the ban on alcohol in restaurants in the Pearl Koplar development, the later closure of a branch of the, the alcohol shop uh, in Qatar in, in that same development in 2012, um, as well as the banning this past year of the consumption of alcohol uh, during Hajj in hotels. And when I spoke to uh, one of the Amir's uh, aides, on, or one of his advisors, on this topic, he told me alcohol is not necessary for modernization. And so in these kind of social policies, it seems the government is willing to give a little to appease a more traditional segment of the population. Um, we've also seen, in terms of other social policies, removal of statues that are considered religiously offensive. Most famously, in 2013, removal of a statue of Zinedine Zidane from the Doha Corniche. And in 2015, um, there was also a government-sponsored rebranding of a modesty campaign. Encourage um, expatriate behavior to be a bit more modest in terms of dress and just more bonding, I guess, behavior. Um, so what we see in Qatar is a symbiotic relationship between the Brotherhood and the government. It seems that the government considers the Brotherhood to be a means of cementing <coughs> government and legitimacy rather than undermining it. And we see something of a self-fulfilling prophecy in how governments treat the bonds of Brotherhood. If the government treats the brotherhood as a threat, it appears to become one, as we've seen in the UAE, whereas when the government treats the brotherhood as an ally or potential partner, it tends to become that as well. And so the brotherhood in Hatha continues to exist solely as a tendency or a trend, and uh, yet the fact that it it exists only in the informal sphere does not make it not influential. In fact, uh, cultural politics is is quite uh, under-institutionalized rather than under-politicized. And so, simply because the Brotherhood is not institutionalized does not mean that it doesn't affect policymaking, at least in certain issues, specifically social policies. Um, so now I'm going to look uh, finally to the UAE, um, and it's different structurally from it's, its Brotherhood movement. was different structurally to the Brotherhood movements we've talked about previously, due to the federal nature of the UAE's government organization. The UAE, as you probably know, is divided into seven different Emirates, each with different, each uh, with six different ruling families and with a degree of independence in terms of their uh, policies inside of the Emirates. They're also uh, vastly unequal economically. Um, the leading Emirates of Abu Dhabi and Dubai, because they underwrite the vast majority of the budget, also set the majority of federal um, policy. And so um, you see increasing, increasingly um, this relative deprivation, particularly in the Northern Emirates, um, which suffer from kind of lack of basic infrastructural needs. Um, and and that has kind of led to more Islamist sentiment in these places, specifically in Ras uh, and Fujairah. Um, So as in Qatar and in Kuwait, uh, brotherhood influence was first seen in the education sector in the UAE, um, and brotherhood influence was only formalized in in 1974 through a Dubai branch of Islam which was established as only the second civil society organization inside of the United Arab Emirates. Um, it was approved by the Ministry of Social Affairs and was in fact financed by Dubai ruler Sheikh Rashid al-Maktoum. Because the, the organization was focused on preserving the UAE's Islamic identity, it wasn't considered as a political threat and so the government didn't find it problematic to provide funding for it. Later in the 1970s, in fact, uh, Sheikh Rashid helped contribute funding for branches to be established in northern Emirates of Fujairah and Ras al-Khaimah. And interestingly, president of Emirati president Abu Dhabi ruler Sheikh Zayed al-Nahyan contributed land for a branch to be established there, yet ultimately didn't give permission for the branch to open. And so there was no uh, Brotherhood affiliate inside of the capital. There was also no uh, Islam affiliate inside of Sharjah, due largely to the prominence of Arab nationalism at the time the Brotherhood was founded, as well as links, traditional links to the Saudi Oman, to the Saudi establishment more generally. In Ajman, uh, the Brotherhood existed under the umbrella of the Association of Guidance and Social Counseling, which is often dubbed Ershad, but wasn't as uh, active as Islah. Um, so, like other Gulf Muslim Brotherhood affiliates, the Emirati Brotherhood was involved in social and cultural activities, in particular the organization of sporting and charity um, activities. Looking, and, and it also did publish its own magazine called Al Islah. And I was able to look at a number of of old issues of the magazine and found that the focus was primarily on Islamic education, the censorship of inappropriate Western materials, the, uh, constricting the sale of alcohol, and also the general encroachment of Western culture. And it also touched on certain political issues, in particular corruption in government spending and, in, and, and inappropriate behavior by members of the government more broadly. Um, despite some some kind of leanings toward opposition that were expressed through Islam magazine, Members of Islam enjoyed ministerial positions up through the 1980s, in particular in ministries of education, justice, and al-Khaf, as the government was eager to moderate Islamist complaint. It was especially prominent inside of the education sector. In fact, Egyptian religious scholar, Izzadine Ibrahim served as vice chancellor of the National University UAEU from 1976 until 1985, and Islam member, Sheikh Saeed Abdullah Salman, was minister of education from 1979 until 1983. This is in addition to a large number of other kind of sympathetic, uh, Islamist sympathizers who were employed by the education ministry, in particular, in the creation of curricula. And in that way, they were able to have influence on that sector for decades, even after they had left. Um, the, the brotherhood also had influence in other sectors of uh, MRT life, Uh, in in particular in mosques, and to the point that in 1988, the Ministry of al required that Friday sermons be submitted before being delivered. This is common actually throughout the Gulf, Um, but in the UAE, um, we see that this is largely in response to brother, what is seen as brotherhood leading mosques in in the state. Um, There's also a great deal of influence, brotherhood and Islamist influence more broadly in the judiciary. uh, and in 1978, the UAE decided to align its penal code with Sharia, and this led to problems of implementation. Um, kind of Islamist-leaning judges tried to, uh, throughout the 1970s, impose serious uh, punishments, Sharia-appropriate punishments for things like uh, like, uh, uh, consuming alcohol. And in fact, in 1993, an Egyptian judge attempted to institute Hajud punishment um, against some people who had been convicted of smuggling. So beginning in the 1990s, the government began to see the Brotherhood as too powerful and potentially dangerous. Um, and in, 19, in, in the early 1990s, uh, the government opened an investigation in the education sector in particular, as there were charges that scholarships were being misallocated and that they were primarily going to Islamist sympathizers, and rather than being awarded based on merit. But what led to the first crackdown on the Brotherhood was ultimately allegations from Egyptian President Hosni Mubarak uh, Islam's charity was funding Egyptian Islamic Jihad. This raised uh, an enormous amount of paranoia and, and understandably among uh, members of the American government and uh, kind of cemented ideas about the Brotherhood being fundamentally disloyal and uh, violent. And so in 1994, the federal government dissolved the elected boards of directors of the branches of Islam, put them under the supervision of the Ministry of Social Affairs, froze their external activities, and banned their members from taking any sort of public office. Notably, the Ras al-Khaimah branch was excluded from ministerial control due to the protection it held from its sympathetic ruler, Sheikh Sultan bin Muhammad al Qasimi, whose cousin headed Islam there. Um, And so brotherhood uh, activities continued, but on a slightly smaller level. And an already tense relationship between the brotherhood and the government became worse following 9-11, especially in the face of criticisms that the UAE had turned a blind eye toward extremism. Uh, in fact, two of the attackers in 9-11 were from, came from Northern Emirates of the UAE and so the UAE was under enormous pressure to crack down on extremism. And having already kind of conflated the Muslim Brotherhood with violent extremism, this uh, trend continued in Emirati policy making. And between 2002 and 2004, some 250 islamist-leaning individuals were uh, arrested, most of whom were released, um, but they were arrested under the guise of kind of cracking down on extremism. Um, There were also a large number of Muslim Brotherhood uh, sympathizers who were transferred out of the Ministry of Education at this time to diminish their uh, influence in that sector. Um, Also, interestingly, beginning in 2003, the government hosted uh, specifically Abu Dhabi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Zayed began holding talks with members of Islam trying to convince them to dissolve dissolve their organization. Indeed, in the governments online, if the organization wasn't involved in political activity, there was no need for it to have an independent um, group, an independent structure, and so essentially wanted the uh, the Emirati Brotherhood to adopt the Qatari model. This ultimately was unsuccessful, and led to further government marginalization of the of Brotherhood members inside of the UAE. Nonetheless, the Islam branches were able to continue primarily with their social and cultural activities, um, and then uh, beginning in two thousand nine, we saw. Kind of the the first signs of a new broader opposition movement involving not only members of the Muslim Brotherhood but also um, non islamist groups. Um, with the with, um, in, in 2009, with the creation of the website UAEHuar.com, this provided a platform for anonymous uh, expression of grievances, the political grievances of which the Brotherhood had many after what they considered unfair crackdowns um, earlier. There A great deal of posts on government corruption, as well as inappropriate behavior by royals and by uh, members of ruling families, um, and ultimately the website was shut down in 2010. Still, this set the stage for kind of a broader opposition movement. And in March 2011, 133 intellectuals, including members of Ifla, um, signed a petition to urge uh, political reform, in particular. They demanded the expansion of the electorate and uh, power of the only elected body in the UAE, the Federal National Council, or the FNC. Um, the petition stated that the FNC, FNC should have power to produce legislation and to supervise the executive, rather than simply provide advice on issues of the cabinet's choosing, which is its current status. Notably, this petition was supported by four professional associations that were traditionally influenced by the of Brotherhood, teachers, jurists, university professionals, and national heritage professionals. Um, and this is the first time that liberal and Islamist opposition groupings kind of worked together inside of the UAE, um, and this understandably upset the the Emirati government and made it fear that there was a large opposition movement that it would be facing. And so, in 2011, five um, signatories of the petition were elected or you know, were arrested um, <laughs> for publicly insulting the leadership and were sentenced to three to five years in prison. Ultimately, following international outcry. Um, they were pardoned, um, but crackdown continued in other ways. Um, the government disbanded the management boards of jurists and teachers associations, since they had signed on to the petition, and were nominally associated linked to Islamist sympathizers, and also closed the office of four, um, foreign NGOs at this time. Um, the government also tried to appease uh, popular opinion by expanding the FNC's electorate to 12% of the Emiratis <coughs> and also um, used disbursements to abuse the population, uh, in particular public sector pay raises and increase in welfare benefits, in addition to increasing the aid that was given to the Northern Emirates. Nonetheless, um, Outbreak continued about what was seen as an increasing crackdown and in securitization inside of the UAE. Um, and in 2012, this crackdown came to focus on Islam specifically rather than on the opposition movement more broadly. By the end of 2012, 94 members of Islam had been arrested on charges of plotting to overthrow the government. In addition to 13 Iraqi women who were accused of aiding Islam members in prison, 20 Egyptians who were tried for, created, for creating a Muslim Brotherhood branch inside of the UAE, and Qatari national Mahmoud Al Jaida, who was sentenced to seven years for supporting Islam members in prison, but was ultimately pardoned after one year. In addition to these arrests, the government also very publicly vilified uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and claimed that members of law had admitted to. Uh, Having a military wing, as well as aiming to overthrow the government to create a caliphate, um, a claim which is flatly denied by, uh, flatly and very publicly denied by members of Islam, and for which I see no evidence in any documents related to Islam. Um, again, we see this conflation between uh, violent extremism and the Muslim Brotherhood in, in the minds of the Amalati rulers, and we see this again in 2014 with a new anti-terrorism law which allows for expanded use of the death penalty, and also has the potential to be used against peaceful activists, due to a very broad definition and range of activities which is, are described as terroristic. Also in November 19, uh, 2014, a list of 82 terrorist organizations was released by the government, and this included kind of the usual suspects, uh, Al-Qaeda and ISIS, yet also included peaceful groups like the Muslim Brotherhood and even advocacy group, the Council on American-Islamic Relations. So we saw a surprisingly harsh and public crackdown in the UAE. And from, but surprisingly, there hasn't really been any outcry inside of the country about the harshness of this crackdown, which is perhaps a testament to the fact that the Brotherhood wasn't actually that powerful inside the country. Um, uh, and so the, it seems that Abu Dhabi's kind of security-led approach has overtaken others. Um, and there's a, a central, an increased centralization of security inside of the UAE. Previously, different emirates have been able to handle the brotherhood in different ways. And so, for example, in Rasul Haima, Islam was more um, tolerated, whereas in Dubai, um, rather than cracking down on the brotherhood, the leader of Dubai used to meet with members to try to dissuade them from being a part of, of Islam. Um, in Abu Dhabi, however, Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed considered the only means of dealing with the brotherhood uh, to be a crackdown. And we see in documents released by WikiLeaks, um, the degree to which Mohammed bin Zayed believes the Brotherhood to be an existential threat. He talks about how the Brotherhood has infiltrated the military, how um, the Brotherhood could win, in, would win, in any ele- if any elections were held inside of the UAE. And so, in his mind, um, crackdown is the is the only option. Um, and and it's it's difficult really to determine how popular Islam ever was. Um, estimates of its membership range from 400 to 20,000. Um, in my estimate, it would much closer to 400. Um, and, and so and even <coughs> if it did have 20,000 members, it never had any political names or political capabilities, even. Um, and so it seems that the, the UAE has opted for this kind of very harsh crackdown as opposed to the policies we've seen in Kuwait and Qatar regarding the Muslim <coughs> um, But the problem with this, uh, with the, the continued crackdowns beginning in the 1990s, is that the further the Brotherhood is driven underground, the more. Um, the more uh, government paranoia is, is, um, is, it rises um, due to the fact that the, the organization is secret. Um, and so this is ultimately, in my opinion, not really a sustainable um, policy. And the Brotherhood is, is flexible enough, I think, in structure to be able to survive, at least nominally, underground. Um, so I guess that's something of an overview of the cases I looked at. And I hope it's, it's clear now that rentier islamists are fundamentally different from branches elsewhere in the region. And uh, what I think is common in all of them is that the brotherhood's influence, uh, political influence, and ability to influence policymakers came through its uh, impact in the social sector, in particular in education. Um, And so uh, we see a broad division in these super right states between the social and the political. Um, And it seems that a focus on social policy is, in fact, quite political in in the Gulf states, Um, in particular because social policies do inform how people view the appropriate role of their governments as well as how political discourse should evolve. And so, in, in the Gulf in, in particular, debates about culture are highly politicized. Governments spend sp- significant amounts of money to promote indigenous culture as a means of boosting national identity. And so, non state cultural activities are um, inherently political because they're competing with state sponsored institutions. And so, um, Basically, we see rentier Islamism as a domestic political arrangement in which Brotherhood affiliates exercise political capital through informal means, despite or perhaps in, because of um, the presence of vast hydrocarbon wealth. And so, we see ideological affinity for the Muslim Brotherhood creates political capital, despite the fact that these are rentier states. Um, and and it seems that uh, the, in my opinion, the Muslim Brotherhood and Islamism more broadly will always be a part of political discourse in the Gulf, especially since. Islam is often used to legitimize the rule there. And so co-optation and cooperation is a more sustainable policy towards these groups. It seems that um, Saudi Arabia in particular is changing, is softening its position somewhat from having designated the Muslim Brotherhood as a terrorist organization in 2014 to today saying it has, quote, no problem with the Muslim Brotherhood. Not today, Uh, but in 2015. Um, and so we see this uh, changing dynamics and different means of handling the Muslim motherhood, but ultimately a different model for Islamist activity in super rentier states. So. That's
0: great. Thank
1: you very much. <laughs>